not eating by way of gluttony, not eating by way of just like a secular or even just a family gathering, but eating and the way that it connected the people of Israel in fellowship with God. So the first week that we looked at Leviticus, we looked primarily at this idea of acceptable offerings, and perhaps the best example of this would be with the burnt offering. Last week, we looked at the idea of, this, of dealing with sin. And so the sin and the guilt offering were the primary emphasis in last week, uh, the passage that we looked at. This week, all of these details, uh, all of the offerings are described as far as how the priests were to handle them, right? But I think the particular one that we want to focus on and emphasize is that of the peace or the thanksgiving offering. And so we'll talk more about that uh, as we get a little bit further in this morning. But first, I want us to look at the whole section, uh, chapters 6 and 7, and see all of the handling instructions for all of the offerings and see what that might have to teach us. The main point, though, I think, especially as we look at the peace offering, is this from these chapters. God desires peace and fellowship through holy offerings. The first thing that I think we see from these passages, not so much from the section that Bob read, but from chapter 6, is the idea that the offerings were a source of provision. I think this showed God's goodness. And so we see this particularly in chapter 6, verses uh, 8 through 30, and then the first part of chapter 7. For whom were the offerings provision? Well, we see this phrase, every male or Aaron and his sons or the Levites, those phrases are repeated in verses 16 and 18 and 29 of chapter 6, also chapter 7 and verse 6. And so specifically, the offerings were a source of provision for the priests who were serving in the temple. There were certain restrictions, however, in terms of who could and could not consume these offerings. First of all, the burnt offering was not a provision for anyone. Sometimes we see it referred to in the Old Testament as a whole burnt offering because the whole thing was put on the altar to be burnt up. The people, the priests, no one could eat any of it. It was wholly devoted to God. Furthermore, the grain offerings, if it was something that the priests themselves brought... They could not eat of the part that they brought as a contribution to God, but they could eat a portion of what the people brought as a contribution to God. Why was this? Perhaps the simplest explanation is just the people gave it in worship to God, and God gave a portion of that to the Levites. But when the Levites themselves brought something to God, it wasn't as though there was another person who then needed to be sustained by the offering that the Levites were bringing. It was just an opportunity for them to worship God specifically. So all throughout this chapter, chapter 6, we see this emphasis on who can eat of it and the conditions of where they could eat of it. But it's not just that the offerings were God's provision specifically for the Levites, specifically for the priests, but perhaps even more importantly... The idea is repeated throughout this section that the offerings were holy. So not only do we see God's goodness in providing it for the tribe of the Levites, but especially we see throughout these two chapters God's holiness emphasized in how they were supposed to handle the offerings that were brought. When they ate of it, for example, chapter 6, verses 16 to 17, what is left of the grain offering, Aaron and his sons are to eat. They, it is to be eaten as unleavened cakes in a holy place. They are to eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. 
It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their share for my offerings by fire. It is most holy, like the sin and the guilt offering. So it was to be eaten in a holy place. We see this again in verses 25 and 26. This is the law of the sin offering in the place where the burnt offering is slain. The sin offering shall be slain before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tent of meeting. And then again, chapter 7, verse 6. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. Furthermore, we see that if anything unclean touched the meat or the grain, the offering was defiled and was to be burned. Chapter 6, verse 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is the offering which Aaron and his sons are to... I'm sorry, that's not the right reference there. That was the the one where the... um, Uh, Aaron and his sons could not eat of the offering that they had brought. The actual reference is in chapter 7, uh, verses 19 to 21. The flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten, but burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But this was a very serious thing. We notice the penalty in verse 20. If he eats it in uncleanness, he shall be cut off from his people. And then he goes into even further detail. If he touches anything unclean and then he comes and eats of it, he shall be cut off from his people. Now, it's important to remember that uncleanness is not sin per se, right? Because there are a variety of medical conditions and other things that would make a person unclean according to the law that God sets out for his people. And yet even so, a person who is in that state of uncleanness was not allowed to participate and, and take that which was holy and thereby defile it by their association with it. Which, for the Jewish rabbis, posed all sorts of interesting and difficult questions, right? So, for example, if there was a priest who was unclean, and he was unclean during the day, but then he was clean by evening, could he then eat of the sacrifice later in that same day? They, they had all of these discussions about all of these, sort, all of these different things. And while I think those are important issues to explore, much like what we were talking about in Sunday school, when we have an excessive attention on the details and missing the main point of what's being said, we're missing the main point that God wants us to pay attention to, right? Which is, here is something that's holy, don't defile it, take it seriously, handle it properly. This idea of handling continues in the fact that if they had any containers... For example, uh, verse uh, 28 of chapter 6. The earthenware vessel in which it was boiled shall be broken. If it was boiled in a bronze vessel, it should be scoured and rinsed in water. So we have this idea that the thing that held the offering was to be regarded as needing some measure of purification or attention, right? Think about what this would have involved. If every time something from the offering touched a clay pot and the clay pot had to be broken and a new one made, that's a lot of extra work, right? And yet this was the careful attention to detail that God demanded of the people in their worship of him. We also see this idea of a person touching the offering being sanctified by it. For example, in chapter 6, verse 18, whoever touches them, the offerings will become consecrated. 
In chapter 6, verse 27, anyone who touches its flesh will become consecrated. When any of its blood splashes on a garment in a holy place, you shall wash what was splashed on. And so it's not a... This almost might seem to be a contradiction with what I said a few minutes ago, that the person who is unclean shouldn't eat of it. And yet there is this... There is this it's two sides of the same thing, right? A person who comes before God in a clean state is consecrated by contact with the sacrifice, with the offering, and yet a person who is unclean is not to be associated with that sacrifice. And so they're not necessarily contradictory. They are uh, two different emphases of the same thing. Furthermore, um, they even had to wear, in certain cases, special clothing to handle these offerings. Chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. The priest is to put on his linen robe, He shall put on undergarments next to his flesh. He shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. So not only the the pots that they used or the bronze vessels that they used had to be cleaned or washed or broken, not only were there these regulations about who could and could not come in contact with the sacrifice, but even when they're handling the ashes, like we would see ashes, no big deal, it's leftovers. It's, it's like if, I'm not trying to make, this, make light of this, but it's like if you or I were cleaning out our grill and there's ashes in the bottom of it, we don't save them, they're not special, they're not important. And yet in this case, because those ashes came from this offering that was holy and dedicated to God, even what was left had to be handled carefully and soberly, and with great attention to detail. Why all this ritual? Why all of these things? Look at chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, in connection with the burnt offering. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall lay out the burnt offering on it, and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it, Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. I think that this was a picture of God's holiness. I mean, if we look in the New Testament, passages like Hebrews 12, where it says that our God is a consuming fire. Even earlier in Israel's history, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters God as a fire which burns and yet does not consume the bush in which he sees him. So I think this is a constant reminder of God's holiness in this fire that is burning continually upon the altar. The offerings were provision. The offerings were holy. And there were all of these rules and regulations that were laid out for them to be handled correctly and appropriately in a particular way. But the one that I want to emphasize particularly for you this morning is the peace offering. And that's the section that Bob read for us a few moments ago. The peace offerings especially were a picture of the peace and fellowship that we have with God. For us as New Testament believers, we see that that is through Jesus. For them, it was the peace and fellowship that they had with God through Moses and Aaron as the mediators of God's word to them. What was true about this peace offering? Not just the Levites could share in the peace offering, Uh, The Levites clearly are the only ones who are allowed to eat what is left of the grain offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings. But when it comes to the peace offerings, it talks about if he, that is the person who is offering it, offers it by way of thanksgiving or 
verse 16, if he offers it in connection with a vow or as a free will offering. So there is this idea that there would be an Israelite who says, I'm bringing an offering to God. The offering is not to deal with my sin. Why? Because that's what the sin offering and the guilt offering were about, right? So you had the burnt offering, that's something devoted to God. You had the grain offering, that's something that you're bringing to God, not necessarily for, in most cases, to deal with sin. But the sin and the guilt offering, those were to deal with sin. The peace offering was a picture of their ongoing fellowship with God. They were able to share in it, just like the priests were. Now, offering part of it to God and then eating it, so, for example, verse 14, of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It was a contribution to the Lord. The priest was able to take that as his food, right? But then there is what is left, the person who is, who is doing the offering is able to eat of it in verses 15 through 17. Now, what's the picture of this? The picture of this is the person brings the offering. They present part of it to God. Specifically, the priest would do that. Part of it would be burned. Part of it would be eaten by the priest. Part of it would be eaten by the person bringing the offering. What does that then do? It connects all of those who participate in a relationship with God. I think we don't recognize that um, association in the Old Testament because Leviticus seems like this dry book that has a bunch of rules, so we skip over it. So then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus says something like in John 6, 53 to 55, which I'll read for you. In the context of having fed the 5,000, Jesus says, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. And we tend to say, like the, like the watching and listening crowd, that's too difficult to understand. We don't know what it's about and we skip over it. But what is Jesus saying there? Your fellowship, your participation in me as the offering, going back to the picture of the Old Testament, is what provides for you life and a relationship with God. So then we come to another of those things that we're like, yeah, that was a first century issue, we don't really care about it, which is Paul's condemnation of meat offered to idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Turn over there with me if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This was a big deal in the church at Corinth. But the church at Corinth, unlike the audience of John's gospel in some respects, is not 
Jews and Gentiles, but primarily Gentiles. And yet even so, Paul has this Old Testament background in which he then comes and addresses this issue of meat offered to idols. Verse 4, for example, There is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. And then he says, uh, some, not, verse 7, not all have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And then he says, this is so serious, verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to stumble. All right, now flip over to chapter 10 here of 1 Corinthians, and specifically down to verses 14 and following. He gives the examples in the beginning of chapter 10 about all the ways that Israel sinned before God. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then he says, I speak as to wise men, verse 15, You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Which ties in very well with Jesus' words in John 6. Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Paul then appeals to a passage like this one here in Leviticus to say, participation in the sacrifice in some degree for the Corinthians is empty because there's only one true God. And yet participation in the sacrifice from another perspective is you are participating in demon worship and you can't do that because you belong to God. So how then do we respond to that sort of situation? Well, Paul's instructions are if they sell it in the meat market, you can go buy the meat off the shelf or hanging in the meat market and you can buy that and you can eat it and it really doesn't matter if it was sacrificed to the idol or not. Because you're not there at the temple participating in that process of worship. There's only one God, and the meat itself is not corrupted by having been in that worship ceremony. And then he says, if an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, eat anything they set before you. They're probably getting their meat from the market as well, and you can freely eat from it. But then he says, verse 28, if anyone says this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake, I mean not your own conscience, but the other's man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then, therefore, you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Gentiles or the church of God, just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved." We like to pull that out and be like, yeah, God wants me to glorify him in everything I do, which is true, but we tend to make it backwards. God wants me to glorify him in everything I do, 
including the stuff where I eat and drink. But what is it saying? It's saying the opposite. It's saying God wants me to glorify him in everything I do, particularly the way that I eat or drink. And what is the significance of eating or drinking? Eating and drinking, things connected with sacrifices, has a moral and a conscience significance to people who are observing and participating in those things. And so you have to think about how that is going to affect the people you are there with. Is it going to encourage them to participate in false worship, which is a worshiping of demons. It is a fact that it's worshiping demons, even though there's only one true God. So you can't go willingly participate in that, and you can't encourage them to go participate in that. What then is the significance looking back to Leviticus? The Israelites were actually sharing in fellowship with God through the sacrifices that they brought, and particularly their peace offerings. And so the eating and the offering and the being there in the temple, all of those things were associated with that. And so as we look at that and we think about it, and we think about now things in the New Testament, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, turn over one more page, specifically in verse 20, Therefore when you meet together, 1 Corinthians 11.20 It is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And then at the end of that passage he says, um, verse 33 and 34, When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. We see a picture of this as well, or at least an allusion to it, in the book of Jude, verses 1, uh, it only has one chapter, but verse 12, where it alludes to those false teachers who are spots or blemishes upon your love feasts. And then we also see it, for example, in Acts chapter 20, Paul gathers with believers. He's about to meet with the Ephesian elders. They meet, they gather, they share a meal together. So as we put all these things together, what was happening in the early church? The early church was having opportunities to associate with one another and express fellowship by the sharing of food. Satan comes in and corrupts it and makes it a this guy thinks about it like golden corral and this person thinks about it like I haven't eaten all day and this is the first and only meal I'll have, right? So perhaps the parallel for us would be, you know, um, I was just listening to something on the radio the other day. It was talking about there are kids in connection with school lunch programs who don't eat much, if anything, outside of those school lunch programs, right? So you have someone who has no food and they say, here's a free meal. I'm going to take all the advantage I can of it. They're starving and then you have someone who's well off, they've had supper at home and they're like, I really like to eat or I want to do this, so we're going to treat it like a buffet and they're going to come in and stuff themselves. And so the thing that was supposed to be fellowship and sharing and honoring to God is corrupted. I don't know all of the historical reasons why this time of sharing and fellowship with meals was a practice that was largely done away with after about the 3rd century A.D., and we don't see anything similar to it until we see in more modern times some of these gatherings and connections with churches and meals and those sorts of things. But now, 
those things to a large extent have lost any kind of spiritual significance. If we gather for church and we say, hey, we're going to get together and we're going to you know, have a meal after the service, we don't necessarily think fellowship because I think we've been told food in and of itself is not fellowship, so you have to have a spiritual conversation to like sanctify it, right? We think that way sometimes, right? But the very act of sharing in food when it is offered or set apart to God, blessed in some way, and then is shared among God's people, has a measure of spiritual significance, not in a mystical way. It's not like the food provides some sort of special benefit to you. But there are significant parallels between what we see happening in the Old Testament with the peace offering and what we as Christians, if we think about what is going on, can see when we gather and when we eat, having offered it to God in thanksgiving by prayer before participating in it, and being joined together by Christ, who is, as the New Testament says, our peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, you know, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. There are parallels between the peace offering of the Old Testament and opportunities for Christian fellowship of which food is not a mediocre or mundane or an unimportant part of that. But the warnings still stand in the New Testament, right? If we have, for example, the um, attitude that the Corinthians did, if we have the attitude that the Corinthians did of it being an opportunity for us to be gluttonous or things like that, then we are looking at that in the wrong way. If we look at it as an opportunity for us to be selfish, we have much and this person has little, and we don't care about that at all, we're going to look down on the person, we're looking at it in the wrong way. Now, is it a biblical command to do what the early church practiced, which is to have a meal separate from but in connection with the Lord's table? I don't think it's a command, but given that we look at the example of the early church in a number of other ways, it would be something that would do us well to at least consider whether it is a useful practice. And at the very least, even if we say it's not something we do monthly in connection with the Lord's table, that at the very least, the next time you come to a church potluck or a fellowship time, that instead of looking at it and seeing the food part as an extra, think back to the Old Testament and the significance of the peace offering and think about the opportunity that you have to share and to serve with and worship God even and especially through the eating of food. Now that's complicated in our day, right? Because we have things that we think about nutrition and allergies and all of these sorts of things, right? And that's not really the emphasis. I don't necessarily want to go into all of those details. The important thing that we see here is the connection, the intersection of food, relationship with God, and relationship with other people in the peace offerings of the Old Testament, which is then visible again in the New Testament. And in some measure, particularly in the Lord's table, but to a lesser degree in other things that are not required by Scripture, anticipates a gathering with, for example, in Revelation chapter 19, we refer to this idea of people being gathered to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So tie all those ideas together. 
You have peace with God through Jesus. Jesus is the offering who has been presented to God and in whom we then share, John chapter 6. The way in which we share is important because if we do it selfishly and carelessly and as though it doesn't matter what the people around us are doing, 1 Corinthians 8, 10, 11, we can be sharing with God, but we're not sharing with other people. We're missing part of the picture of the Old Testament, right? If we see it as only a temporal thing, we're not looking forward to the fact that we are going to share food with God in perfection, in rejoicing, in celebration of all that he's done. So there's an important element as we think about these truths of looking back to the pictures God gave the Israelites in the Old Testament considering in the present the way in which we approach these things and looking to the future and what all of these things are ultimately moving toward, which is enjoying God's presence forever. These offerings, regulated collectively, things that were clean and unclean, holy and unholy, but demanded careful attention to God's word. So let me read for you briefly a passage from 2 Corinthians that I was reflecting on recently. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. This adds another dimension that I think ties in very well with this passage here in Leviticus. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship have light and darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So what I was talking about for the last little while emphasized the peace and fellowship dimension of the offering. But what I want to talk to you now as we close is what about the holy aspect or dimension or or attribute of the offering? We come to a passage like 2 Corinthians 6, and we think it's primarily about, you know, don't marry unbelievers, right? And there's a degree to which I think that is a valid and an important application, right? Because if two people are not focused on serving God together, there's constantly going to be this tension and division, right? But I think Paul's primary emphasis is on to a Corinthian church whose context is having been saved out of demon worship and who have a loose attitude towards sin, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you cannot live the way that you did before you knew Christ because you are now new creatures in Christ And so that means don't go back to the old sinful habits that you had before you knew him. And furthermore, don't go back to the actual sinfulness that you had before you knew him. Because we look at a passage like this, and people have taken this passage, and they've said, we are the temple of the living God. And they've said, well, that means don't put graffiti on the temple, don't get a tattoo. I would point out to you that this is saying collectively we as believers together are God's temple now there are other passages that say Christ dwells in you individually 
But here the idea is God dwells among you collectively. Now to the point of the tattoo thing, I'm not saying that's immoral. There is a point we're going to come to that in the discussion in Leviticus and we can talk about it at that point. My point is simply to say the emphasis is not eat good food so God's temple looks nice, right? The emphasis here is you collectively are God's temple so you can't have that which is unclean and sinful in God's temple. Okay, so then we read chapter 7 and verse 1 and I think it brings all of these things together in an amazing way. Therefore, having these promises, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So this is the aspect of holiness in connection with the offering. What are we supposed to do in order for us to have this peace and fellowship with God? Well, ultimately, we can't have peace and fellowship with God unless we know Jesus. So the first step is coming to God through Jesus and beginning to trust in Jesus, turning to him for salvation. But having done that, there is an ongoing process in which we, by God's power, continue to be cleansed from defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, in which we are changed into the image of Jesus, in which we are constantly putting off sin, in which we are ourselves becoming holy offerings to God even as Jesus was the holy offering in God's sight. And so as we think about all of these things in scripture brought together, we ought to have this conclusion. I have peace and fellowship with God. Just like God gave the Israelites a peace offering as a regular reminder of that reality of relationship with their God, and just like they had to be sober in how they approached it, they couldn't be unclean, the priest had to follow all of these rules, I can have peace and fellowship with God through Jesus. I have reminders of that peace and fellowship with God through Jesus, particularly in the Lord's table, but potentially also in other gatherings of the church that remind me of the fellowship I have with God and with others. And in order for me to properly participate in these things, like 1 Corinthians 11 says, examine yourself to see whether there is any sin in your heart. And like this passage says, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit because sin is always going to interfere with our relationship with God just as being unclean and sinful interfered with the Israelites' relationship with God in the book of Leviticus. One more important point as we tie all these things together. It's easy for us to adopt an attitude toward Old Testament passages that are like, well, they had all these list of rules, and those list of rules are legalism, and those list of rules were bad. Galatians, I think, makes it very clear. The rules, the law, all of the things associated with it, the sacrifices were not bad in and of themselves. But much like the Corinthians corrupted the gathering to observe the Lord's table, the Israelites corrupted the observance of the law and turned it and twisted it into a thing that was not pleasing to God. The Pharisees are condemned for this in the Gospels. We ought to be condemned for it as well if we add to God's word things that the Bible does not say. We are constantly fighting against a pull in two directions, sometimes at the same time. Ignore what God has said so that you cannot do it. That's lawlessness. That's what 
Paul condemns in 2 Corinthians 6 and also the first half of 1 Corinthians 10. Don't break God's law. But then we're also pulled over here. Don't add to what God has said. Because when we are breaking God's law or when we're adding to what God has said, in both cases, sometimes right back and forth, almost in the same moment, we are not focused on what God has called us to do. What has God called us to do? Love God, love your neighbors, yourself. And particularly, how do we apply that in this passage? You love God by, as a holy offering through Christ, the holy offering approaching God. How do you love others? Through fellowship and uh, gathering and all of these sorts of things, being reminded of these great and wonderful truths, and reflecting on a passage like Ephesians 2. You were over here, you were over here, God is here. As God draws these two groups to himself, what happens if two things move closer to a point? They move closer this way also. And so that's the picture that we have in a passage like Ephesians 2. God has made those who are enemies one in Christ. God has made those who are his enemies, his children through Jesus. And so together we can have fellowship, we can have peace, we can and should live holy lives, and the intersection of all these things is a very interesting and close parallel to what God called the Israelites to do in the Old Testament through this regular reminder of their fellowship with God in the peace, the fellowship offering, the thanksgiving offering. So as we close, do you have peace with God? The only way you have that peace with God is through Jesus. So if you have never begun to trust in him, you need to start trusting in him because that's the only way that you have peace with God. But as Romans 5.1 says, if you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God. So we move from that to considering other things like the peace that we have with other people, the sanctification that God is constantly working in us, the opportunities for fellowship and gathering God has provided for us, and all of these things provide a connection back to what God has been communicating to his people all along. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Here's what's involved in that. Here's what it looks like. And so in some respects, there are clear differences between what happened in Leviticus and what happens today. But in a lot of really important ways, there are strong parallels and we would do well to reflect on them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to consider these truths from your word. Help us not to see in the book of Leviticus rules that we are not presently required to follow or to see it even as an evil thing, but rather to see it as a good picture of the opportunity that we have to have fellowship with you, of the expectation that you have that we would come before you in holiness. Lord, help us not to, to miss these truths even this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.